there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Okay, here's the first question. It is one thing to be able to accept something that happens in one, one live, lives to us, but how do you handle physical pain that happens in us and is really beyond our control? I always have physical pain, and at times it keeps me from doing anything. This is depressing, even though I know God's grace will be sufficient. I'm very glad that this question is asked because I'm sure that many of you have the same question and it's a question that I cannot speak from very much personal experience about. I've had very little physical pain in my life. I've had only one baby and I guess that was the worst and uh, you know as far as pain goes I don't know anything worse than that and probably some of you do but a few months ago the Lord gave me a lesson I fell down the stairs and injured the sciatic nerve and for two weeks I was more or less in an agony each time I moved. Now I was very grateful for the fact that when I was perfectly still I was not in pain and I kept thinking during those two weeks of God's teaching of all those who are in constant and irremediable pain and just praying for them. But I did what I try to do with literally everything in my life, and this is all I can say by way of answer to this question, first of all recognize that nothing touches me that doesn't come through God's loving permission. Absolutely nothing can touch his child that doesn't come through his loving permission. So it was no surprise to God that I fell down the stairs. The second thing to remember is that it is like everything else in my life, material for sacrifice. In other words, that I can offer up literally my physical pain. And I did that. I tried to do it continually and, and repeatedly. Every time the pain hit me, uh, just say, Lord, I, I offer this to you. Now, as for the very difficult problem that seems to us of being unable to do anything because you're in physical pain, remember that it is always possible to do the will of God. So if God has allowed you to have the kind of pain that absolutely paralyzes you, and you cannot, you literally cannot do anything else, what does God want of you then but simply the willingness to lie there and suffer in his presence, thanking him for life and breath and all the things that make your life as comfortable as it can be, just the cup of tea or the lunch that somebody brings you or somebody coming and doing something for you. You have a million things to thank God for, but in that we are called sometimes to suffer, period, and to offer, we can then offer that back to Him. Second question, if single while waiting, does one date or wait? <laughs> until God reveals that person. And here is a tough question. When you get beyond 21 or so, where marriage is a very serious question in your life, 
I would say that by far the most important thing to do is to wait. And I think the dating business, as I observe it nowadays, is chaos. You wouldn't believe all the letters that I get. I have bulging files from men and women in their 20s and 30s and even in their 40s. And men are getting to be 30 and 40 without wanting to take on the responsibility of marriage because nobody wants commitment. And consequently, there's a whole generation of women who are not marrying in their 20s, as used to be the case. And I, I think this is sad. I think it's tragic. And I, when I have a chance to speak to the men on the subject, I try to sock it to them that this is a responsibility that they have before God to find out whether marriage is in the cards for them and then to wait on God to lead them to the right woman without leaving a trail of broken hearts behind them. And this happens over and over and over again. And of course, many of the letters, most of the letters I get are from Christians and I hear this terribly spiritual talk about how the Lord led us together and all this and then the first thing you know, the Lord leads the guy to ride off into the sunset. And I just don't think God works that way. And I think the, the thing that is lacking is the willingness to wait in silence before God and pray. Now the only thing that women can do is to wait and pray. And God will direct you. That's all I can say. I can't give you a rule of thumb, but if the right man does come along and ask you for a date, then I just, all I can say is I believe God will tell you whether that's the one you should date. If you know ahead of time that you wouldn't even think of marrying this man, for example, if he's not a Christian, I would say don't even think of going out with him because the scripture says that we are not to marry non-Christians. We're not to be unequally yoked together. But waiting and praying are the things I can tell you for sure without any doubts that 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 is right. And as for dating, you're going to have to ask God when the time comes. Understanding that God uses suffering in our lives, why would he allow one to suffer until death, say with an illness, when he has said in his word, by his stripes, we are healed? Well, you're asking me a question that only God can answer. We know that the Bible also says it is appointed unto man once to die. And many of God's choicest servants have suffered until death. John the Baptist had his head chopped off. God delivered Paul and Silas and Peter from prison. He let John the Baptist stay there until he had his head chopped off. He allowed Stephen to be stoned to death. And of course, the most obvious example of what we're talking about here is the cross. The worst thing that human beings ever did, God transformed into the most wonderful thing that ever happened. The cross means my salvation. And in my next talk, I will be talking about the transfiguration of suffering, which calms a lot of my questions. There are many today who are preaching a gospel of healing, which I do not think can be supported by scripture. Paul asked God to remove the thorn from his flesh, and God's answer was no. My grace is all you need. And so Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
It is the power of Christ that can rest upon us if we accept the suffering that God brings to us. And acceptance is a very important aspect. You know, no tragedy has ever made a saint out of anybody. It's the response that changes us. How do you deal with criticism from other Christians, mainly toward your Christian husband when you know he is wrong? How do you deal with criticism from other Christians mainly, and then parenthesis, and non-Christians toward your husband when you know he is wrong? We wives are to be loyal to our husbands, and if these people are coming to you and criticizing your husband to you, which I gather must be the case, then I would say, I don't want to hear about it. If you're talking about how do you deal with the fact that other people are going to him and criticizing him, and you know he is wrong, as in any case where I think my husband is mistaken, and even though all three of my husbands were fine Christian men, they were not always right, uh, I would certainly hope that in, in any marriage there is the possibility of communication, but that needs to be preceded in a case like this with your silence before God and prayer and waiting for the right time and the right words to say, in which case uh, perhaps you can speak to him tactfully about something that you know he's being criticized for and let him know that it seems to you that the criticism is justified and ask him how he looks at it, and then maybe you can pray about it together. How does one best handle being the vehicle of the, of the cross in our family's lives because of increasing disability? Well, I would strongly recommend that you read A Chance to Die, which is my biography of Amy Carmichael. God used that single Irish missionary in India to be the mother of hundreds, perhaps thousands, of Indian children. She founded a work for children in South India called Donovor Fellowship, and at one time there were 700 children and 200 workers, to whom all of, to all of whom Amy was the mother. And she fell at the age of 63 and was incapacitated for the rest of her life. And she had prayed fervently that God would not allow her to live past what she thought of as her usefulness her physical ability to move around. And God allowed her to live for 20 years in pain and confined to her room. But during that time, she did a very great work of prayer and letter writing, and she wrote about 20 books. Now, God doesn't give most people the job of writing books, but my dear friend Arlita Winston right now is undergoing chemotherapy for cancer. And the first time I learned about it, I just reminded her that it, it, she told me that the two things that bothered her most right now were the possibility that she would not be able to keep up her letter writing with her five children, who are all adults and scattered over the globe, and that she wouldn't be able to teach her women's Bible class. And I said, well, Arlita, that's nothing to worry about because it's always possible to do the will of God. Now, she knew that as well as I know it. But, you know, we need to hear things that we know by heart from somebody else because the word has to become flesh. And she told me later that that, that was the word she needed. That's all, of, all that she needed. So I really do believe that it is always possible to do the will of God. If it's the will of God for our leader to teach her Bible class, she will be able to do it. If it's not 
possible for her to do it, then obviously it wasn't the will of God for her to do it. How do you feel about the concept of tough love, especially in marriages, separation, etc.? That's a tough question, and I have not read Dobson's book, and I, have, I really haven't read any books that deal with that. I don't read very many modern books, to be quite honest. I read books that have been out for about 100 years. My father always told me to read two old books before you read any new one, and I read that C.S. Lewis said read three books before you read a new one. So at that rate, I don't ever get around to the new ones. <laughs> but uh, I do think that we need to, that our love must be tough as, as God's is. God's love is tough. We read in Hebrews that he chastens us as a father chastens his son in order to teach us. And that's what punishment is about. And we need to be, we need to love our children enough to say no. And I see a lot of very irresponsible teenagers growing up. How are you going to teach a teenager to be responsible if you didn't start when he was two years old? It's going to be much tougher for you and for him. But before God, I think we need to know what love is. It's not a sentiment. It certainly isn't a glandular condition. It has nothing to do with moods. It is a course that we choose, a course of self-giving and self-sacrifice, but it also involves toughness. How do I obey God and also submit to my husband when the two seem to conflict? For example, when I tell my husband, God wants me to do this, and he objects. I would never tell my husband, God wants me to do this. I have never said to anybody, God told me to do this. Um, if it's something in the scripture that is unequivocal, then you can say that. I mean, God does tell me not to commit adultery, and God tells me to love my husband, and God tells me the things that are in the Bible. But if it's, for example, um, I'm just making a wild guess. If you, if you want to do something in your church, and you think God has told you to do this, and your husband does not want you to do it, because it's not unequivocal in Scripture, I would say that the answer is to submit to your husband. Again, in a tactful, gentle, quiet way, you might explain to him why you want to do it or why you think God wants you to do it, and presumably you've already done that. And if his answer is still no, then I think we are to submit. Now, if it's something outrageous, which the Scripture clearly forbids, of course, there are rare times when we have to obey God rather than a man. Usually this question, and it comes up every time, you can be sure, uh, usually it's hypothetical. But I have had women tell me that their husbands actually asked them to sleep with the boss in order that the husband could get a raise or something. One woman came to me and said, my husband wants me to, be, to learn to be a belly dancer because there's big money there and we need big money. You know, now to me that, that is outrageous and I, I'm afraid that I would put my foot down there. But you have God's protection when you are doing the clear thing that God commands us women to do. We are putting ourselves under God's protection. And 1 Peter 3 is the passage I would refer you to where Abraham did tell Sarah to do some outrageous things. And it says that Sarah did not panic 
but she put her trust in God, and God protected Sarah. It's very difficult for me to know when God is speaking to me during pain or a crisis. We receive so much advice from everyone who cares about us. How do we know it's from God? If it's completely in accord with the scriptures, we know it's from God. If it's not, I can't tell you. I think you just, it's a matter of believing what it says in James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally without making them feel foolish. And I remember the case of when my husband, my second husband was dying of cancer. We had reams of books sent to us, endless advice of all these weird and far out cancer treatments and my husband wanted to try them all and we began trying one after another and it got so confusing and we got so upset about it that of course we were praying that God would lead us to the right thing and um, I believe God did lead us to the right thing which was to just forget about all these contradictory things because every book we got contradicted the last one uh, we just had to leave it all in God's hands and my husband died and I have to accept that that was his answer. Is a woman in the workplace allowed to be a manager over a crew of men, according to biblical standards, even if she's a Christian and they are not? I can't speak directly and definitely to that simply because the Bible doesn't. And I try to stick with what I know the Bible says and try not to say what the Bible doesn't say. But it is very clear to me that God's order in the church and in the home is that authority is vested in men. And because that is the creation order, Adam was the first created and Eve was created for him and from him and brought to him and named by him. All those things give me a definition of where I belong in the world. I think. If I were in a position of being the boss over a crew of men, it, it would be difficult. And, and I have been in that position when I was living in the jungle and after my husband died. I was the foreman of a crew of about 40 Indian men who kept our airstrip cut with machetes. And I always found that very difficult. But as far as I know, I wasn't being disobedient to God. It was something that absolutely had to be done. But if you're in a position where they want you to move up to be the manager, then I think I would be very hesitant about that and do a lot of praying. Our beloved retired rector is dying of cancer and his wife is dying of a brain tumor. This is difficult for our congregation. And that is just a statement, not a question. I'm sure it is very difficult. What advice do you have for raising children in this world? How much time have we got that one? May I, this is wonderful, though. It gives me an opportunity to recommend a wonderful book written by my great-grandfather. And it is in print, believe it or not. I was surprised that a, a publisher has brought it back into print. It is written by Henry Clay Trumbull, T-R-U-M-B-U-L-L, who raised eight children, one of whom was my grandmother. And it's called Hints on Child Training. Hints on Child Training. What is the best way to raise a godly generation? Now, I have just finished writing a book telling about how my parents raised us. So don't hold your breath. In another year or so, that book will be out. But let me give three basic rules for raising children. Number one, start at birth 
letting the child know who is running this household. If you need help in starting at birth, could you hand me my little notebook there? I will, I'll give you a book that tells you how to start with, you keep the papers. <laughs> Thank you. A marvelous book that my daughter Valerie tells me changed her life when number five came along and she is now expecting number seven. Um, this is written by a midwife who used to stay with the family whose baby she had just delivered for about two to six weeks and help the young couple put the baby on a schedule which makes the baby happier and makes the home free. The baby's not running the house and it's called My First 300 Babies. <laughs> now this woman speaks from authority because on 300 babies she had used exactly the same method. It worked every time and the testimonies in the book from the mothers are just wonderful. You cannot buy it in a bookstore so I'll just give it to you right now. You can take this down. Please do not order it from us. My first 300 babies, that's all you need. You don't need the author's name. But Valerie said, it works. It changed the whole routine of their house. So that's a good place to start. If from the day the baby comes home from the hospital, he knows that the mother and daddy are in charge and he's not running the house, it will make quite a difference. Then when the child gets to crawling age, that's the time to start two commands, which he must learn to obey. One is come and the other is no. <laughs> and as soon as he starts pulling something off the coffee table, you say, you look him straight in the eye, and this is very important, make sure you have eye contact, speak his name, and say, Jeremy, no. And Jeremy understands that. Every child understands much more than you think. He understands no. And if his little hand goes right ahead and touches whatever's on the coffee table that he's not supposed to touch, then he gets a spanking. And my mother used a little thin switch, about 18 inches long, from the bush in the backyard. And it works. We didn't, um, the little thin switch on your legs, it's not going to hurt anybody. And don't get all twitchy about thinking I'm talking about child abuse. When I talk about spankings, there's a world of difference between an angry, punishment administered by an upset mother or father and a measured amount of pain carefully administered by a very calm and gentle mother who has spoken to the child in a normal tone of voice. Now if you repeat the commands, you are training your child not to pay attention on the first time. So you must be very careful not to repeat them. He must know that he does it on the first time. And the same thing is true with come. If he doesn't come, then you say, you have chosen a spanking. Now, you have to explain, him, explain to him ahead of time. I might, you might give him a few tries on that first day, but not more than a day. I mean, really, the child is perfectly capable of understanding what no means and what come means. And this does work. Now, I've had people say to me, boy, you kids must have been getting spankings every day of your lives. The truth is, we got very few spankings because they started early enough so that we knew they meant exactly what they said. And they meant it the first time. And they never raised their voices. 
we six kids get together every now and then and talk about our family and we have racked our brains to try to remember any time when our parents raised their voices. It didn't happen. What about trials that are definite fiery darts? I think maybe we have one minute by my watch from the enemy. I refer you to Paul's thorn. It clearly says that it was a messenger from Satan. But it was meant to teach him that God's grace is sufficient. So the two things go together. It was from God to teach him not to get up, not to get unduly conceited, Paul says clearly in that chapter. This is 2 Corinthians 12. You can look it up yourselves. He had had a very strange spiritual experience which he would have been tempted to make a big deal out of. And he said, in order to keep me from becoming absurdly conceited, God, uh, I, was given a I was given a thorn, a sharp physical pain, a messenger from Satan. Now you know it wasn't Satan who cared whether he got absurdly conceited. That would be God. But it was also sent by Satan. So don't ever worry about sorting out, did this come from God or did this come from Satan? Everything comes from God in the ultimate. And everything is out of love and meant to teach us something. Here's a question I can answer in one second. When did you marry Jim? October 8, 1953. So I need to stop with that now even though I have a couple more to go. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.